Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. This week, we're pulling another episode from the long, long ago. My guest is Jessica Hinkson, an actor and filmmaker you may have seen as Dr. Ilsa Brundel in Another Wolf Cop, or co-starring opposite Jessica Greco in the short film Jessica Jessica, which they also produced. Her short film, Joey, was supposed to premiere at the Canadian Film Fest last month, but obviously that didn't happen. You'll have a chance to catch up to it when things go back to normal. Jessica picked Romance and Cigarettes, John Turturro's heartfelt but very odd 2005 musical starring James Gandolfini as Nick Murder, a Queen's family man whose comfortable working-class life turns into a raging sea when his wife Kitty discovers he's been cheating on her with a much younger Tula. Susan Sarandon plays Kitty, Kate Winslet is Tula, and also knocking around in there are Bobby Cannavale, Elaine Stritch, Steve Buscemi, Mandy Moore, Eddie Izzard, Mary Louise Parker, Amy Sedaris, and, because this is a musical, Christopher Walken. I mean, it's not just a musical. It's a comedy. And a tragedy. Basically, it's one of the wildest, weirdest, gopher-brokiest things anyone's ever attempted. And, as you're about to discover, it mostly works. This is someone else's movie. Well, I'm a huge John Turturro fan. And I, you know, the film is irreverent, and I like irreverent odysseys myself. I kind of find that life for me hasn't been super linear, yeah. and I, which is why I relate to films that are reverent and nonlinear, because I'm like, yeah, I kind of feel like that sometimes where it's sort of surreal. And am I going to wake up, or is this really happening, or how did I get here sort of thing? And I just thought, I think it's hilarious. I still think it's hilarious. Like, it holds to this current date from when it was made however many years ago. Uh, well, it, it was shot in 2004, 2005, right? Yeah. It wasn't released until 2007 because no one would touch it. Yeah. Which... It's different. It is. Yeah. I mean, well, we'll have already set this up in the intro so you don't have to worry about explaining it, but yeah. it is a, it's a hard sell until you see it. And then I was going over the reviews just yesterday and I realized, yeah, people either got it or they didn't. There is absolutely no middle ground on this. No one said, oh, it's fine. Yeah. There was a beautiful, um, just an argument for how ludicrously over the top it is and because everyone is willing to go there. It's not that you ever feel that the actors are uncomfortable or the turd doesn't know what he's doing. There's a language to the film and it just, uh, a lot of people compared it to Moulin Rouge, which makes perfect sense to me because it's movie stars singing pop songs. Yep. But it's also a heightened reality that just happens to be studiously working class. But, I mean, by the time Bobby Cannavale shows up, you're just like, oh, I get it. Like, I know what kind of movie this is. You see Bobby Cannavale, you're like, okay. Yeah. If I didn't get it before, I've certainly got it now. Yeah. Someone <laughs> referred to him as acting from his groin, which is we, like, yeah. literally dead on. I think that was definitely where he was living. <laughs> <laughs> but I saw, too, in terms of, like, the actors being comfortable and stuff, like, they were in rehearsals. They sort of navigated all that stuff before they got to set, so the actors were comfortable. Oh, they have to be, right? And you can see it. You can see that on screen, that they obviously did sort of work all of that stuff out. And, I mean, Mary Louise Parker, her first scene when she comes in, (laughs) says, Dad, just the way she says it, I mean, the way she's standing and holding herself, I'm like, she's so in character, which all of them were. And they were so committed, and it was like, it would have been so fun and freeing to do work like that that's... You know, you have an opportunity to do something totally wild and different than what we normally get to do. Yeah, it feels like the greatest workshop project. Yes. Right? We're going to do this, we're going to sing these, and we're going to shoot it because yeah. why the hell not? Except that, you know, the choreography is fairly complex and the camera moves are like they're not simple. It's not locked down. There's, 
There is, yeah. I I, I had seen Turturro's other films mm-hmm. uh, before before Romance and Cigarettes played at TIFF, and uh, we were talking before we started recording about how, you know, if you if you could pitch this, it's like, oh yeah, John Turturro made a movie and the Coen Brothers produced it, and no one would touch it. Yeah, like no distributor would take it. And a year after this came out, they made No Country, and the Oscars happened, and they could do whatever they wanted. Yep. I mean, they always did whatever they wanted, but people would pay for it. Well, it was interesting because I was I forgot that the Coen brothers had produced mm. it. And, you two totally blanked on that. And so then, you know, re-looking and stuff before coming in today, and I was like, oh, my God, I forgot. And I also remember being like, what? <laughs> you know. Yeah, it does not it, feel like one it of It doesn't feel like a Coen film, a Coen brother film. And so, and it was right before they kind of landed and then their careers became what they've become and continue to become. And uh, I think when you read even the synopsis, like just off on a sheet or IMDb or anything, it's like, it's very simple. No way would you have ever read that synopsis and seen in your head what it was that John Turturro had in his head, you know? So I can see in terms of a pitch how it would be like, yeah, for sure. This sounds like fun, it's a musical, whatever, but to be as irreverent as it is, I don't think anybody knew, except for John. Yeah, and I don't think, I mean, I certainly didn't think he had it in him. Uh, when I heard what it was, Yeah. really? Because he's, he's, he's great at displaying a sense of humor when he's working for other people, but in the work he's done himself, mm-hmm. he tends to be very self-serious as a filmmaker. Uh, yeah. like Mac is heavy-going. And it's it's good. It's not a bad movie. But again, I could not connect this to that. Uh, in much the same way, I suppose you couldn't connect necessarily Raising Arizona to Miller's Crossing, even though they made them no. right back to back with each other. Yeah, that's the Coens for you. And and what he does, what Turturro does in Miller's Crossing and Barton Fink, those are, yeah, there is a continuity somehow that leads us to Romance and Cigarettes. You can sort of see this guy who is perfectly willing to humiliate himself on camera, uh, go all the way if he trusts you, you like like Lebowski alone. Oh, my God. Jesus is such a a lurid, dangerous, weird, potentially career-destroying role. Yeah. And he makes it not just fun but ebullient. You just love watching this awful character show up over and over and over again. Yeah. And that should have told me to trust him. (laughs) And then I saw the film and was like, oh, this – not only is this not a disaster, it's actually really strangely honest and open about relationships and humanity in the in the shape of a giant, ridiculous studio musical. It feels like it might have been produced mm-hmm. in the basement at MGM. Like when all the when all the real directors were off doing something else, a bunch of weirdos snuck down to the basement and made this and came out. Well, yeah, that's. I mean, even though obviously they had a, you know they had money because. The water shot with Kate Winslet and all oh, yeah. that sort of stuff is not, it doesn't just happen. Right. It's the Esther Williams stage when everyone else has gone home. Yeah, like exactly. Just... But it's just sort of, it was like, but it was also very simple and relatable in terms of who these people were, uh, were and are as a family. And, you know, it was also odd that the daughters, um, you know, Mary Louise Parker and the other two actors, well, Mandy Moore, Mandy Moore was one yeah. of when she was quite young, but it was like they were clearly older than what the characters are probably written to be, but it worked because yeah. of who those actors were and what they brought to those characters. Like yeah, it was just, they're like sick of being teenagers. Yeah, you, like you get the sense that there's this weariness about them. Yeah, almost. Um, 
Yeah, the, the whole, I mean, the whole cast. Um, you put Gandolfini and Susan Sarandon together and there's an additional, like, kind of this East Coast, um, not even East Coast, like, hard Brooklyn, I suppose. They're, yeah. Like, these are people who have, even though Susan Sarandon has been a movie star since the 70s. Well, let's be honest. One of her first breakout films was Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah. Which was totally absurd. Too. Yeah, and you she know? was completely willing to throw herself into it. Yeah. But then on, you think about, like, what was it, six years later she made Atlantic City with, with Louis Mel, and, and she is utterly real as a working class um, habitué of this. Like, I don't even know what the right word is, but she's know, just, she's, 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 she is, she is the, she, she conveys exhaustion. Uh, and so does Gandolfini. And, and they're t- and together, their pairing is just so perfect because you get this sense of a couple who have, like, they're done talking. They have nothing left to say to each other. They don't hate each other. They're not tired of each other. But their mutual exhaustion has just sort of drift, let them drift into this stasis. Yeah. So when he is tempted by a ludicrous caricature of seduction, mm-hmm. and again, Kate Winslet throwing herself into that, that is... A fully committed performance. Oh, it would have to be with that dirty mouth. Yeah, but she's so well. I mean, the English swear like sailors. That's... Oh, they do. I'm, but I'm like, it's so fun to watch her yeah. in that role because she's having so much fun just being foul mouthed, and you know, you've you've I forgot, and then you rewatching it again, and I'm like, oh, it's so God, that would be so fun to do that. Like, how could you not have fun? Yeah, um, playing that role with her fiery red hair and. And you everything know, being on fire all the time. All the time when she's, oh, my God, the firefighters <laughs> around her and the whole day. I mean, it's just wild fun. Yeah. And it's, you can, I think that's what it is. You can feel the actor's liberation. You, you We're invited to enjoy it by the film rather than being held at a remove. And, and, you know, like these performances aren't under glass. They're for us. They're, like, when you cast Christopher Walken and you ask him to sing Delilah, this is what you get. You don't yeah. want a different version. You don't want a careful movie. No, and he's so brilliant. He really, like, everything, I... He's just, I'm, the way he moves and the way he embodies his characters and, like, when, you know, because he did the music video... Uh, oh, Weapon of Choice. Yeah, and which video, was yeah. fabulous. And, I mean, how many times have we all watched that over and over again? But it's just, he, there's, like, this elegance and this grace, but yet he'll say this thing with his yeah. voice. And then, you know, and he's... He, again, he just, you get lost in watching him, as you should. Yeah. Because he's just so in it, as were all the actors in this. Yeah. I mean, it really is a, it's kind of a reverie, almost a celebration of actors acting. Yeah. And that's the stuff that we're cautioned not to commit to. You know, like, we're supposed to be, as an audience, we're supposed to be wary of that. Yeah. And and to wonder why is this meta, is this a commentary? And I really... I don't think it is in this case. I think Totoro just loves this so much. It's fun. It's not—sometimes I think we do look too hard to find something or to find a meaning where with a film like this, it's how did you feel? Did you enjoy it? Did you have fun? Mm -hmm. It's not that the characters don't go on a journey, especially James Gandolfini's character and their relationship, Susan Sarandon and him, but it's not necessarily something where it's like we have to have this huge analogy and walk away with like this deeper meaning and whatever. Um, I think that you can just literally go in and be like, I feel good, and it's okay to feel good when yeah. you watch a film sometimes. We don't always have to <laughs> feel sad or angry or 
whatever. It's like, oh, I just, that was awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's weird. I mean, there is no larger, I kept thinking the first time through, I, I kept trying to figure out if this was some sort of all that jazz thing. Oh, yeah. That was his point of reference, but it's not because the stylization is totally different. And ultimately, I think the message is different. It's not that Gandolfini is a Bob Fosse, Joe Gideon, self-destructive monster who pushes himself to death. Yeah. He's just weak, right? He likes being in love. He likes being in lust. Yeah. He gets distracted. And then it's not like he pays for it. Life just catches up to him. Yep. And it's right there in the title. It's right there. I and I was reading a couple of reviews where people thought it just that last 20 minutes wasn't necessary. And it's like, it kind of is, though, isn't it? I mean, you need to you need to see what ultimately becomes really important, what ultimately matters. Yeah. And again, the the film, I'm, I'm being vague, I realize, just in case in my brain, I'm being vague just in case people haven't seen it. Yeah. But again, what's the title? It's... You know, Romance it's and not cigarettes. Gonna, it's not going to end well. Neither of these things is going to end well. No. And uh, again, he, t- he he went for it. He he entertains us, and then he makes us just think about it a little bit, and then he leaves us on a high somehow. Still, Turturro just found a way. Yeah. And I've never, yeah, I've never interviewed him. I think it would have been one of the first questions I would ask him ever since. It's like, how? When did you know? When did you know you could do this? Well, I think it's so. Interesting too that at the last shot is one of my favorites, uh, or one of the last shots wherein James Gandolfini is in the hospital, and he's obviously you know mm. in palliative care or whatever, and Susan walks in, and she pulls out this huge knife and scares the living daylights out of him, and then they both start laughing like it's this joke that's been between them, yeah, you know, and I was like, well, that's their relationship right there. And I think that that's relatable and there is a huge history. And they're friends first and foremost. Maybe they're not in love, as we talked about now, but mm-hmm. they were. Yeah, there's something there. There's there a connection. Is. There's, a, there's a, an acknowledgement. Yeah, and, then I, and I feel like in that moment because of that sort of secret joke and we're let in on the secret, you mm-hmm. know, as much as they're laughing, I'm laughing too. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So when did you first see it? Did you see it theatrically? Did you get the chance? I didn't see it theatrically. I saw it, I think I rented it on like DVD right. years ago because I was like, what is this? And I always try to find different stuff. I mean, I will watch everything and anything, and I will go back and rewatch series so I can see why they worked. Okay. Because I'm one of the, I don't know. I, I love to like sit and pick stuff apart, yeah. it, not in a negative way, but just sort of like be like, well, what about that worked? Why Or why didn't it work? The engineering aspect. Yeah. Right? Like how do you put this together? Yeah. Like could it have been saved if this was done differently? So uh, I saw it, I don't know, a long time ago. And then I obviously rewatched it um, before coming in today because it had been a hot minute. Yeah. Yeah. It's you know, been, I'm going to guess it's been about... Eight years since I've seen it. I think I it would probably be, but I, that's one of the films that I always tell people to watch along with Holy Motors and, you know, David Lynch films and right. et cetera, et cetera. Well, they are so, I mean, they're so unique in their creation, in their artistry. And again, it's weird that I'm thinking about a John Turturro film in, in line with those films, but it's yeah. not weird because this was his one shot. Like you feel, it feels like, I've, I've used this expression before, I'm sure, it feels like a first novel where you pour it all yes. in because you don't know you'll ever get the chance to do it again. And this is his third feature. So he's obviously confident in 
the mechanical stuff. He knows what to put the camera. He knows what he wants to do. He's made two movies. Yeah. And yet, this doesn't feel like either of those. It doesn't feel like anything else he's done subsequently. It's just this blast of talent in every direction. I mean, the cast as well. It's not just him. And, you know, we lost Gandolfini uh, in 2013, I guess. And the idea that there was this tiny window where, first of all, this tiny window where James Gandolfini was a marketable lead, right, because of The Sopranos, and then that you could cast him as someone named Nick Murder. I know. And let us kind of in on that. And it's just like, oh, it's silly. That's it That's ridiculous, but it's the world that we're in. And then all of these factors lined up and that Kate Winslet was willing to do it before her full respectability period started. Yeah. Because um, she's a fascinating talent, but there was a, a window of five or six years where she was just chasing the Oscar and for whatever reason, or, or she was plugged into prestige productions, Revolutionary Road and The Reader and all of those. And you just, after, I guess it was right after this, really, like the late 2000s, the, the, sorry, the, the the second half of the first... What do, we, do we have a name for it yet? The aughts? Do we call it I don't something? know. I don't know. I'm like... 2005 to yeah, 2009. That time. Yeah. Until she won the Oscar, she was really chasing very, very serious stuff, and it was to the detriment, I think, of her talent because she's good at this stuff. Well, she's, she's great so, at comedy. Yeah, she is. She's hilarious. But I, I wonder if this specific film for John Turturro was around something that was happening in his life where mm. things felt surreal or kind of like he was, am I going to wake up from this? Or maybe it was just sort of taken loosely and then inspired by, you know, not only his life but maybe other films and things he wanted. He was like, I just want to, because relationships can be absurd and sure. nonlinear and, you know, I mean, there are some people that just kind of go steady. But for a lot of us, that's not the case. Yeah. Um, and and then just sort of adding all these sort of wacky elements to heighten the story. But it's like, yeah, I get it. I get that character. And I know where that character lives. And I know where that character lives and where they're coming from. And and then just sort of going with it and needing to get that out of his system. And then going and doing the other films that he's done right. and continues to do. Go back to the respectable. Yeah. Or not the respectable but, stuff, but the things that people expect from him. Yeah. Well, what in terms of what would be considered like a straight narrative. <laughs> right, a revival project, yeah. right? Like something you can market easily. Yeah. I, I'm always fascinated when actors direct because you get the sense that they either have been wanting to do this forever or that they just thought it would be an interesting change. Mm -hmm. And with Chaturo, I mean, this movie doesn't come out of a, eh, let's see what happens. Like this is a, this is a conscious quest yeah. to make this film. And... You have him, you have, he's, he's, he's not in the film. He's completely. He is. Wait, where? He's one of the dancers. I mean, he's not in it. That's but right. Yeah, he's one of the dancers. <laughs> and I was like, I mean, I didn't recognize him. I'm like, what do you mean you're one of the dancers? But he, he could have been in the fireman. Yeah. Dance around Kate and the somewhere. fire. Uh, but, I mean, he could have been in a couple of things. I mean, Bobby Cannavale's son, who's now an actor, is also mm -hmm. in the film. Um, which I was like, I didn't see him. You know, I saw him in Nurse Jackie, right? Uh, which he was great. But it just, I was like, there's all these. But that's what I love too when actors make films is that they just bring all these people in and they're like, hey, friends, yeah, let's do this ensemble piece. Who knows what's going to happen? But we're going to have a great time while we're doing it. Yeah. Well, if that's what you get from from the performances here. Like, if yeah. they didn't trust him, this thing wouldn't work. Yeah. No. And <laughs> yeah. 
it could have gone in very opposite directions. Yeah, yeah. There, I would love to see a documentary about just not the making of the film, but the but the the pitching process, the casting process, where it's just like, so you know, I I have this thing I want to do, and because I I've I I know enough people in the industry now that I that when they're working on something really personal, and you can feel there's a tension, like there's an additional sense of risk and a reservation, and I wonder if anybody ever turned him down, if there were people he approached that he didn't get, or if everybody just jumped because, yeah, why wouldn't I? This sounds fascinating. Let's see what happens. Yeah, something different than what I'm going out for or what I've been offered. Yeah. I mean, Gandolfini, no one was giving him this. Nobody offered him a chance to do this. He was doing, he, you know, The Sopranos is there and the comedy in the Mexican and stuff. Like He's got roles that are fun for him, but this was. The Sopranos, though, was so intense. And I think, you know, being who he was and being offered the opportunity to just sink his teeth into something so different. Yeah. And that alone would have been like, yeah, where do I sign? But then you've also got like Amy Sedaris. Yeah. In there, which, you know, I mean, she her comedy and everything is... I mean, she's amazing, but it's, a lot of it's absurd, and her mm-hmm. characters are quite big and different in terms of personality and story. Oh, yeah. And you don't even recognize her until close to the end of the film that it's her because of the way that she's shot for most of the film, even though she's in yelling at Bobby Cannavale, I love you. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, wasn't she doing Strangers with Candy right around that time? Like, she would have been I think 2004 she, I remember seeing Strangers with Candy around that time and thinking, I mean, I love the film, but a lot of people... Like, I don't understand this comedian. I'm like, yeah. you have to read David Sedaris's books, and then you also have to know her, and, like, she's not meant, like, this is supposed to be fun. It's not. Yeah, you cannot take this seriously. No, um, And she's, but she's good at this. She's, like, she's, uh, I've just watched the new episode, the new wave of episodes of BoJack Horseman, and she's phenomenal in that as a voice yeah. actor. She's, she's, you know, heartbreaking. And, and oh. funny and wry and dry and able to do all of these things. And also they keep throwing these amazing tongue twisters at her and she just knocks them down. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, she's a wonderful talent. And I had completely forgotten she was in this movie. I, I usually refresh myself a day or two before the recording. Yeah. I had, did not have time this week uh, for various reasons. And um, I thought I could get away with this because the movie is bur- – like there are chunks of the film that are burned into my memory. I remember them. Absolutely vividly, I'd completely forgotten Sidaris was in there, and yeah, if if Turturro is visible, I can't remember it. And he's not back. visible. He's just, you think he just filled in one day? Yeah, <laughs> I think I don't. Around? Well, I mean, there are some filmmakers who like actively put themselves in their film or their in their TV shows at yep, least yep. once, right? Um, but you can, it's visible. You can see that it's them. Um, but then there are others who I think just want to be a part of the fun. And I don't know if he filled in or if he just was like, nah, I just want to dance. I yeah. don't I don't need to be seen. It's not about that. I just want to, like, be a part of it. Yeah. I mean, he knows the steps. He sure does. You, know, you got this extra fireman's hat. Why not throw him in there? Yeah. Well, and I forgot that Tony Goldwyn was Susan Sarandon's first love or old love, which James Gandolfini has nightmares about. Right, and right. You know, he just sort of, the way that he just sort of, Tony walks into frame and stuff, and you're just like, it's just smart. It's smart and so different. What are some of your favorite scenes that are like... Pretty much anything with Winslet, just because the audacity of it. uh, You mentioned the underwater scene, which is, again, just like, oh, we're doing this. Like, we're going for it. Yeah. And her scenes with Gandolfini are all just, they're almost, they're musical without 
before anybody starts singing, there's just this playfulness between them and this electricity that you buy even though it's your, you know, it. what was it? Uh, a King of Queens situation where you have the, like, dumpy male lead, hot young uh, romantic interest partner of every sitcom that decade was doing it. Yeah. And here, you actually felt the charm. You felt the reasons they would be drawn to each other. Like, she's bigger than life. He's almost smaller than life. Yeah. He's this big imposing figure who just has this massive insecurity, this tiny little thing that drives him that he's going to be sad and alone. And so, yeah, he's going to big it up for her and he's going to make sure that she's drawn to him and he's comfortable with her and, and easy with her and she just responds to that and so many of these movies depend on relationships that are defined by what the script makes characters do. Yep. You can feel the movie forcing people together and this one, it's weirdly believable. It's an organic relationship. Even though he knows he's cheating on his wife and it's wrong, he's still, like, we're on side because she's so ridiculous that why wouldn't you want to spend time with her? Oh my god. Yeah, it's hilarious. Yeah. It's just that, I mean, their relationship sort of defines the movie for me, but there's so much else going on. There's so much more stuff. The world is bigger. Um, kind of Ali, again, just every time he shows up, he's just like, you're ridiculous, but keep going. He is so ridiculous. It's amazing. <laughs> oh my god. He is. I've, again, somebody I've never been able to, to interview. I've never had the opportunity, and he's just someone who is so completely in control of his ludicrousness. Like, he can turn it on uh, uh-huh. in any situation. He's, like... I don't know how he ended up in the Ant-Man movies, but he's hysterical in those. And he's just this weird blank enthusiasm uh, for whatever's going on. And, you know, now that Marvel movies are eating everybody, it's not a surprise. But then you see this this incredible performance pop up in the corner. And, you know, how do you you have a scene with Paul Rudd and Judy Greer and you be the most interesting thing? Like, you just, you make the the choice to just go that tiny bit bigger and and that's what Cannavale does. He's just yeah. like pops in everything. He does pop in everything. He's so, I mean, if he's in anything, then that's an automatic, yes, I want to yeah. watch and see what it is or see what he does because he just makes such interesting choices as a performer that it's like, well, yeah, Cannavale's here, then yeah. I'm going too, yeah. you know? And Subashemi, who plays oh, yes. um, Gandolfini's I think coworker and best friend or whatever, but the dialogue alone that he has, and I was like, only he does it in his way. Again, where he's one of those performers where if, if he's in something, it's like, well, that's an immediate yes because I want to see what he's gonna do. Yeah, he's a pleasure. He really is. Um... No, he really can <laughs> do anything. He's one of those. He's a wild card. But I, but I think the same for Bobby Cannavale. Yeah. Too. Like he's just sort of I mean, how many different styles and types of roles have you seen him in through the trajectory of his career thus far? Oh yeah. You know? Uh and that's what's fun when you watch performers like that who kinda can just morph into all of these different sort of people. Yeah. I think my first experience of him was probably the first time I was aware I was watching him anyway, was probably the station agent. Oh my lord. Where yeah. it's just like this is a beautiful performance of a man who is not quite as smart as he thinks he is or maybe more intuitive emotionally than he needs to be. Yeah. And that that little collision of, oh, I'm going to say something helpful and not being helpful at all and then immediately regretting it. He's just smart enough to know he said the wrong thing. That's a beautiful razor to walk, right? That's yeah. a great decision to make, that you're going to show it, that you're going to reveal it. Uh, I mean, that film is a little miracle anyway, but um, yeah, he was so good in that. And, and again, yeah, this movie is a celebration of character actors like that. It's just a, 
a moment to you know, Christopher Walken. You know he can dance. You know you've seen it. You're kind of aware of it. But let's just leave the camera on him and give him a ridiculous Tom Jones song and just bust it out. Well, that was also what I found interesting about the film is that it's popular songs. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't original works or anything like that. And... um but it was songs that were also relatable yeah. that us as the audience most likely had a relationship to already. And, um, or at least one or two of the songs, if not all of the songs, but they at least sound, would sound familiar to you. And so that when you heard it, you were like, you know, because it was their way of being able to express themselves when words no longer did that for them. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, which I was like, yeah, there's sometimes we don't know as human beings, how we want to express anything any further. There's nothing left to say. Not that we're going to break into song and dance on Bloor Street. It wouldn't be the worst. <laughs> it wouldn't be. But in this film, that's what they're doing, and that's what they can. And uh, it helps them express themselves just a little bit more where you're like, yeah, I know what you're doing. Yeah, and the choice of – they're not quite standards, right? We kind of yes. know some of them. There there's a, there are a couple that I don't think I'd ever heard in a movie before. Um there was a couple I hadn't heard in one, a movie yeah. before, but I knew this. I knew the songs, and then some of them were very popular songs that I was like, "Oh, of course!" Yeah, Christopher Walken singing <laughs> Delilah. Yeah. But there's songs that these characters would have grown up hearing too. Like there, there's a relationship yeah. to the song for the performer as well as for the character that they're they're the right age, sort of. And Turturro's obviously drawing on something specific. Yeah. In his choices, and just yeah. Delilah instead of What's New Pussycat. Like, it's a sadder song instead of a bigger... You know, if you want a Tom Jones number, it's not always the one you go to. Yep, no, 100%. And then also, if it had been that song, then we'd probably been like, I don't know. Yeah, that would push it in the wrong direction, (laughs) I think. Although I do want to watch Christopher Walken sing What's New Pussycat now. Yes, I can picture it pretty easily, and I want to hear his phrasing. (laughs) Exactly, with his accent. What's new, Pussycat? I, I could see it. His, that was pretty good. Oh, thank pretty you. Good. Yeah, I can do a walk-in. Uh, his pauses are masterful. I mean, it, the, the story goes that he just runs through every script, highlights his dialogue, and then randomly inserts those things. I don't think that's true, though. He's just, he is a, he's this, like, you know, he's a trained dancer. He's an incredible actor. He's capable of almost anything. Yeah. I've never seen him give a bad performance. I've seen him be misused, but he is always dead on. And again, here, it's like, well, you're going to like Elvis a lot. Okay. Yep. Where do I go? Where, where, where do you take that? And here he did it. I know. Yeah. yeah. And yet he doesn't sing Elvis. Which but he doesn't. He doesn't sing an Elvis song. No. He sings Tom Jones, I which I maybe was a rights thing, but it works. It works so well. Very well. I was like, you got the relationship that mm. he and his wife had. Yeah. And you're just giddy with it mm-hmm. by the end of that scene. Well, you want to be in the diner. Yeah, you know, throwing pancakes or whatever. I don't know. Yeah, dancing behind him. That's it. You want to be jazz hands. Yeah, that's that's what this exactly. The movie invites you in. It doesn't hold you back. Yeah. Well, you get to be a part of it. I mean, not literally. Yeah. But, you know. Well, there's sometimes where you feel very much like you're watching something private. But this was something that was like, no, come. Everyone's invited. Everyone yeah. gets to play. Yeah. I was thinking about. I mean, it's a bad point of comparison because it's not a good movie but I was, I was thinking about Woody Allen's Everyone Says I Love You mm-hmm. which tries this in its way but is so self-conscious about it and so uncomfortable with musical I, like, I don't think I don't think Woody Allen really likes watching people emote 
uh, Everyone Says I Love You is a movie made by someone who is uncomfortable with the idea of a musical. Like, he likes them in practice, but he doesn't want to make one really. He's, I think his argument was that he was trying to show what a musical would look like in the real world, which is that everybody stumbles and they kind of get the lines wrong and then it's awkward, awkward. and uncomfortable. Yeah. But it's awkward and uncomfortable, right? There's, there's no pleasure to be had in that. And no. Turturro is in love with the format. He wants to make a musical. He wants to show you how much fun there is to be had in this and how much pleasure you can get, even in the sad songs, even in the down moments. Oh, 100%. That, yeah. And it may, I mean, I don't know, maybe he just loves musical and he wanted to make something that was a little bit more wacky but also relatable in terms yeah. of the relationship that Gandolfini and Sarandon have. And, but then it's also kind of sad that he hasn't made something similar in terms of, like, thematically or in style because a filmmaker like David Lynch... Is David like David Lynch does David Lynch, right? And there isn't anybody else like him. And I mean, even in terms of the style of the acting, when you go back and you watch Twin Peaks or any of that, I mean, it's he was doing his own thing and creating his own thing in its entirety. Yeah, yeah. and and Totoro did that with Romance and Cigarettes, but he that's where it began and it ended. Yeah, but who knows? Maybe maybe he'll like revisit, and it'll be some other irreverent odyssey that we'll get to partake in. Yeah, I mean, do you think? I'm trying to think if I've even heard him talk about it recently. I, there really hasn't been a lot. I watched an, a radio interview with him when the film first came out, and they played the dialogue between Gandolfini and Elaine Stritch, who played Gandolfini's mom. Right, and doesn't sing, which is so disappointing. Yeah, and I love Elaine Stritch, and. Uh, you can see how much joy making the film brought him and the the joy that he has on his face listening to the actors. Yeah. You know, he's like, yeah, yeah, we nailed it. <laughs> we did good. Oh, I yeah, did No, good. it's absolutely something he should be proud of. Oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah. It was screened in August at the IFC Center. Turturro was there, and it was his own print, which I assume oh, is wow. a statement of just how hard it is to see this thing on film these days. Yeah, it's such an unlikely film, and almost 15 years later, I have again, I haven't seen it in a while, but I don't think it's dated. I don't think a movie like that can date. No, I agree. A lot of musicals tend to be fixed in their era because of a specific style of production or a particular style of performance. You know, you think about the MGM musicals and the Fox stuff and the Rodgers and Hammerstein. They all kind of have a look to them. Yep. And this one is, it's a, a blue-collar musical that isn't, beholden to any specific era. I mean, it could have taken place in the 30s. It could have taken place in the 50s. I mean, music might be different, but there's a feel to it. Like, it's about relationships and male insecurity and and female desire and all of the things that never date. Well, and a woman being able to speak speak freely about sex and sexuality and just, like, so unapologetic about it. And I think that's what makes it so fun to watch Kate Winslet is like, I mean, we don't walk around speaking like that. And uh, to hear her and kind of go, oh, my God, she just said, you know, yeah. but laugh and be like, it's just sort of. It's, she tosses it off, too. She it's, like, just, it's not a huge oh, she's just, when it happens. Yeah, it's, a, it's like magic. She's just, she's got it down. And I was like, but I wonder if Kate is kind of that quick-witted type of person, too. Not, I haven't met her or anything. I want but, her to be. 
Yeah, you want like you hope that she's kind of this quick-witted sort of foul-mouthed person who's yeah. like, let's get a pint. Yeah. The one thing that I wanted to ask John Turturro about if I if and when I meet him is the water scene mm. for the water song that Kate did because I was I would love to know how they filmed it and also how she was able to sing to do the underwater singing. and like be so comfortable underwater for that period of time. I'm assuming an earpiece, right? Like something to sink to. Yeah. But even then, to measure the breathing and the bubbles. And yeah. Then, yeah. It's not, I mean, there's a reason that doesn't happen very often. I know. So I was very curious because she just looks very comfortable. And I mean, I don't know how, how long they had to shoot it. So how many takes they did. Yeah. Um, but I mean, you don't really see any bubbles when she's singing. So I was like. She yeah. is in water. Yeah, she's either just expressed it all or she's holding her breath and doing the lip syncing at the same time, which can't be comfortable yes. but looks co- to look comfortable. I mean, I'm sure you know, like, actors do uncomfortable things all the time to appear natural, but yeah, yeah, now that I'm thinking about it, that's, if it's the way I remember it, those are some long takes. Long takes. And also, I mean, I would think that you, she would have had to do some training or something to be able to breathe underwater like that. I mean, there's all sorts of different things um, nowadays, but back then, I don't know if something was accessible. So, like, can she just hold her breath for a really long time but also speak and be comfortable? Like, I don't know. Are there divers on the magician frame that we can't see? Yeah. Yeah, I think She wasn't really there. Yeah, I think Kate Winslet being magic is actually the best explanation for anything (laughs) in this movie. Because it is, like, she's never given a performance like it before or since. She's, She's kind of remarkable. Yeah. And... I mean, so is the whole movie. It feels like this impossible gift. Well, the this. daughters and their band and just singing, we're angry. <laughs> Not even really making sense. No. I was like, this is feel, dumb. Man. It's so dumb. It's amazing. Yeah, and it feels like teenagers in a way. It feels like... I think they were like, supposed to be, but that's kind of the the beauty. It's almost, you know... Uh, I don't, I'm not sure if Mandy Moore has done theater um, or the other actress. I think she has, though, and Mary Louise Parker obviously yeah. do a lot of theater. And the beauty about theater is that age is kind of non-existent. Like, you can go down, you can go up, you can kind of be whatever you want. And to be able to be of a certain age and go back to playing somebody much younger than you, you are forgiving one, and it's easy to live in that body without apologizing or being insecure about it as opposed to being that actual age where you're awkward and your hormones and everything are all over the place. And so I think it's very freeing to be able to be 16 or 15 or however the three daughters were supposed to be, but as adults going back down and playing. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you see people do it and it's contemptuous almost of youth and how, oh, I was an idiot. I was like, well, you didn't know you were an idiot. Exactly. So how do you find that? Those feelings are very real. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. Well, I mean, I'm always surprised there aren't more teenage musicals. I mean, high school musical is a thing, but, but I mean, in terms of real musicals about being that young, because when you are that young, everything feels like you're the only person experiencing it. This is like the newest sensation that no one in the world has ever felt as bad as I do. That's, you know, so many... Teeny Bopper songs are about that. Well, you don't you're you don't realize that you're not alone, but I also think it's 
part of being young that you want to feel alone. Sure, yeah. You know? and Leave me alone. Nobody gets me. Exactly. And no one's ever going to understand me or see me for who I am. And it's very dramatic and funny. But as I said, the the seriousness that you feel when you are that age about how you want to be seen and how you want to be... It's like, well, welcome to the party. That's how every human being wants to be seen and to be heard. And and I, like, to come back to John Totoro, I mean, at that time to do the film that he did, this irreverent sort of journey, nobody had done anything like that. And not that David Lynch doesn't do his thing, but you can't really compare. No, yeah. I mean, they're they're singular, separate accomplishments. 100%. But he was so committed to creating and telling the story and did it because maybe it was for him because he wanted to have fun because he wanted to create an opportunity for people that he loves to work with that was non-threatening that was comfortable that was chill as opposed to going on to sets where it's stressful a lot of the time sure yeah and and then creating something completely authentic and kind of going well I don't know but at the end of the day, it comes back to, like, how do we solve this? How do we make this? Because this is what I want to do. And then following through with it. Mm-hmm. It's like... Convincing people to be on board with this thing that they can't fully understand. Yeah. And maybe you don't even understand it until you cut it. But... It could have been something completely different, too, right? Yeah, because yeah. right the script, then filming, because things change depending on how your day is going. Sure. And needing to get your day. And then you get to editing, and it also morphs into something else again. Yeah, yeah. And so it's just sort of, but seeing it through and taking uh, steps like that, I think is so brave and honorable to do something that is going to be a standout piece that isn't marching alongside all of the other sort of narratives that we typically see. Yeah. You can always or at least I have this fallback thing where I can always tell when an actor trusted the director and the director betrayed them for oh, whatever reason. You can always tell when a performance is, when something goes wrong and it's not the actor's, or at least I always have this gut feeling that, oh, that wasn't the actor's fault. That was you doing exactly what you were asked to do and someone else just botching it somehow. Right. And there are, like, if you separate out, like Winslet's performance could have killed her career for the wrong project. Yeah. You can just, you could, it, it would be a meme now. It would be humiliating. And the movie makes it okay. The movie makes it not just okay, but delightful that she's doing this. Yeah. And the same for Sarandon, really, in a couple of scenes. And the same for Gandolfini. And just pretty much any time he starts to sing. Uh, the same for maybe Cannavale, but probably not because he's playing such a caricature. <laughs> It's delightful. Uh, I just have this vision of him on the picnic table in that white Elvis suit. (laughs) He's bulletproof. (laughs) But it's a risk. It's always a risk every time, right? Every time someone steps in front of a camera, and that's something that, again, we don't give actors enough credit for, is that you you, you so badly need to do this that you put yourself in in this position, or you just love doing this so much that you'll do whatever is asked for you, any of that stuff. And here you have this... Film, I think it would have only been made by an actor, mm-hmm. like someone who is predominantly, primarily a performer because he gets the rhythms and he understands what people are going to need to do and he got them there or he encouraged them. And this weird bobble is the result. It's just this fever dream musical fun house of emotion yeah, and meaning. 
But it he also does. wanted he wanted them to not be scared to make fools of themselves. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, we do it all the time uh, as human beings, whether we're aware of it or yeah. not. Uh, and and so, again, you get to see them live in that where we've talked about it throughout this time where they were just so comfortable to be whatever it was that was happening and let the camera see all of it. Yeah. Yeah, it's a delightful weird musical party. Yeah, and I wish that, you know, in the industry we would champion more filmmakers to just, whatever their thing is, is to, like, do their thing. Yeah. And be like, bravo. Yeah. You did it. To just go for it. Yeah. So to that end, is there any, um, is there anything of Romance and Cigarettes that you have borrowed or lifted or cited or just outright stolen in your own work? I wouldn't say that I have Stolen, but it's definitely inspired me. Okay. Um, for sure, as a filmmaker, um, especially with my film Joey that I wrote and co-directed. Um, so, I mean, it's it is absurd and it's irreverent. But I also love Holy Motors, and um, it's kind of you know about Joey this uh, on her wedding day, mm-hmm. and she's having this very surreal experience where she kind of just can't seem to wake up and so she has all these encounters with these strange people as she's trying to get to the ceremony and the people who are in like these strange characters are also the wedding guests because like in our dreams people from your life show up as weird characters and you're like why was my dad the judge of the blah 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 so I mean yeah, I haven't really stolen anything, but maybe I have and I'm not aware. I don't know. I'd be fine to take ownership of it if, if someone was sure. like, you stole that from Totoro. I'd be like, yeah, I, I guess I did. I didn't realize it. Yeah, it's inspiration is different from theft, I think. And, and yeah, no one ever says they stole anything. Why would they? I mean, it's just not how art works, I don't think. Well, I, you know, we try to do stuff that's original, but nothing's original, right? Sure. Uh, at expression. least that's what they, yeah. So, I mean... All I know is that I I really love specific certain like specific filmmakers and that definitely I think shows through in the film. But did I steal anything specific? No. Yeah, I'm just I, I think so few people talk about romance and cigarettes that I half expect this is going to make it to him somehow. He will hear this. Hi, John. Hey, John. <laughs> Keep at it. Do more. Um, I'd love a commentary track. Yeah. I'd love to know. I want stories. Yeah. No, God, in the fire. Kate with the fire. Yeah. Honestly, is The fire and the favorite. water. Let's yeah. talk about the elements. How did you do it? Tell us. Wait a second. We just brought up the elements. She's kind of an elemental force, right? I mean, that character is a force of, like, yeah. people say force of nature, and so she's constantly contrasted with or, or surrounded by the elements. Is there air? She's earthy, right? So that sort of counts. I kind of feel like the air comes in towards the end Right before James goes into the hospital. Yeah, maybe. Well, now I need to see it again. Oh, no. Now we just went to a new level. (laughs) Well, maybe he was waiting for us to get there all along. Maybe. We just (laughs) finally arrived. Maybe that's the way to look at it. You're welcome, John. Yeah. (laughs) And thank you. Yeah, oh, thank you also. I guess we should start it there. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, dear. 
My thanks to Jessica Hinkson, who you can see in the short film Jessica Jessica on CBC Gem, where it's streaming as part of the Canadian Reflections series. And you should also check out her video for Andrea Ramallah's cover of Suzanne. That's knocking around on YouTube. Thanks also to Ingrid Hamilton. She knows what she did. You can find Jessica on Twitter at Jess underscore Hinkson, and you can find Romance and Cigarettes on Blu-ray from Olive Films. It's also streaming on Hoopla and available for rental and purchase on iTunes. There was a DVD from Sony Pictures Home Entertainment, and that did have a commentary, but I never got one, and it's now out of print. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com, where in addition to my film duties, I'm hosting a podcast called Now What?, where I interview Torontonians about our weird new normal of self-isolation in the time of COVID-19. You can find that on Tuesdays and Fridays in your podcatcher of choice, and of course you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it, or this show in general, please say so. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you've been enjoying us. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network. As I've been saying for a few weeks now, Jordan Heath Rawlings' The Big Story is absolutely essential listening and helpful and important. Thanks for your support, and thanks for sticking around. Stay inside, watch movies. I'll see you next week.